The Center for Thinking Biblically is a ministry of the Masters University. Visit thinkbiblically.org for more information. We've seen that God begins. He begins an entire plan for all of this world. This is the story of everything. This is the story. And his plan revolves around Genesis 3.15, about how he's going to preserve a line. And that line will give way and give rise to the Messiah, who will crush the serpent's head in salvation, rescuing us from our sins, from the justice of God himself. Well, God immediately begins this plan and he immediately takes action. And therefore, God begins and God wars. And that's what we're about to cover. Now, at this point, we gotta talk about something that's really, really important. You see, sometimes when we read our Bible, we just think, well, couldn't God just hurry up a little bit? I mean, why do you need this long, drawn-out plan, 66 books, all this information? If I was God, you might say, well, I'd just crush Satan's head right there and then and say, it's over, I won. Why can't that happen? Well, we need to remember a couple things. One is, this is about God being right and demonstrating he's right, and it is about his glory, and that kind of needs to be put into the forefront, but at the same time, we have to understand the flip side of that equation, which is this. You and I are not the center of the story. This is not about how to please us. This is not even what is best and most convenient for us. This is about God and his son. And what God wants to do is to win and to war in a way that puts him and specifically the son on display to show how grand and how majestic and how honorable and how noble and how glorious is his son. It's all about Christ. Yes, if it was all about our convenience, it might've been done a different way, but that's not what God is about. And that's not what the word of God and the plan of God is about. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we read our Bible, we see that God is going to unpack all of the complexity that is involved in his work of salvation, all the grandeur and all the massive ramifications of his plan of salvation so that we would know how amazing is his son, so exalted is his son. And that's what God is going to do. And that's why God begins, and now he wars. And he wars in a way to preserve that line of the seed in amazing ways. He preserves that line of the seed with Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. It's a preemptive strike by Satan against the line of God. And he thinks that by killing Abel, he wins. But God says, you do know that you only demonstrated the depravity of man and that you didn't win, right, Satan? Because that wasn't the line. Abel wasn't the line of the seed. There's a guy named Seth. That's what we read in Genesis chapter 4. And Seth means appointed one. Why? Because he's the appointed one. He is the one that actually the line goes through. And so all of that illustrates Satan thinks he can fight back against God, but God always wins. God always wins. And he's on a campaign to continue winning. And so God preserves the line of seed in Cain and Abel and Seth. He preserves the line of seed through the flood. Why is there a flood? Is there judgment? Absolutely. And at the same time, what I tell my kids is it's like God giving the world a bath to restore the world to the point where his plan can continue. But he preserves his seed in that. That's why there's Noah and his three sons. And within his three sons, the line continues through that. And God preserves it even as he has to create nations. Why 
Why does he create nations? Because human depravity in compounding nature would halt the plan, would restrain the plan. And so in order for God to continue to advance the plan forward in the way that he desires, he creates nations so that there would be nation against nation and they would restrain evil together and that kind of counterbalancing of power. And that way God's plan continues. And so in Genesis, the plan of God continues as he preserves his seed through even the creation of nations. And that means the line of seed has to become a nation, and that's the nation of Israel. And in the book of Genesis, we see how God lays the foundation for all of that, for the nation of Israel and what they're going to do. He gives them a covenant called the Abrahamic covenant that promises land, seed, and blessing. He gives them certain theological truths that they're to announce to the world. They're a nation to make an international impact. And so you read about faith that Abraham had. You read about how God is with his people. In fact, the word Israel, that's what the nation's going to be called in the end, it means God fights for you. God is present and he's fighting for you. Well, what is he fighting for? Well, the end of Genesis tells us he's fighting, as Joseph says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. That's not just in the Joseph story. That's what God does in his speciality throughout all redemptive history and even relative to the original problem that we saw in Genesis 3. And so Israel announces to the world, they're a nation to make an international impact to say, God is with us. You have faith in him. He fights for us, and he fights to make evil good. All of that coalesces in the book of Exodus, where God shows that you accomplish all of those outcomes and all of those realities by one word, and the word is this, salvation. God is the savior, and he delivers. And we see in the book of Exodus that God is a saving and delivering God. He does that through massive miracles as he decimates a nation to free his own people from the nation of Egypt. But here's what we also learn in the book of Exodus, that a physical tangible deliverance, delivering one nation from an oppressor nation, that's not good enough. Because when Israel goes into the wilderness, what do they do? They worship a golden calf. They condemn themselves in that regard. You cannot just have a deliverance from oppression, a deliverance from evil in that sense, or other evil people, or other evil political systems or nations, you need salvation from sin. And Exodus reminds us of that. And for that very reason, God is merciful. And he reveals himself as a God full of loving kindness and truth, and patient and slow to anger, to remind the people that he is a forgiving God. And that's everything in all of these issues. And that's where Exodus then moves to Leviticus. Because you got to understand, if spiritual salvation, if that's the crucial issue, spiritual salvation, then you got to know how it works. And Leviticus is about one word. It's about holiness. It's about God's holiness. It's about how God's holiness is satisfied. We worship God and we see how to worship God. And we see in the book of Leviticus that even the way you become holy has to be holy. The sacrificial system has to be holy. It's prescribed with very great detail, with great precision, because that's the nature of God's holiness. It isn't just wishy-washy. It's precise. It has a standard, and it must be met. And speaking of holiness, since this would be just a brand new concept to everybody in the world, God not only talks about it in Leviticus, he demonstrates it in the book of Numbers. You see, Israel has to get back to the promised land. They've been in Egypt, and God promised them the land of Israel, the promised land. And so they have to get back home. But getting back home in the process of that, God uses Israel basically in spite of themselves to demonstrate that he is holy before all the nations of the world and that he demands holiness. And how do we see that? Well, let's just put it this way. When God kills an entire generation of Israelites, 
Every single person minus two. Every single person is wiped out. You know he's holy. You know that holiness is serious. These are visual reminders that God refines his people, that he is serious about holiness. And every nation knows Israel's marching to war, that Israel's marching to conquer the promised land. And they know holiness isn't just about them. Holiness isn't just about what God will do with those people. God is the God of everywhere. He's the creator and he's holy. This is what he demands of everyone. And that's the book of Numbers. And God in his faithfulness gets his people to the edge of the promised land and then gives them the book of Deuteronomy. Because as they go into the land, they gotta tell what God is all about. What is the core of all these rules and all these laws? What is their worldview? Well, Deuteronomy tells us it's about one word, love. It's about love. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with everything about you. That is the core of the law. That is the law that rules all other laws. And everything in the book of Deuteronomy is about how to love that one true God so fully. That's the end of actions toward God. And that's what Israel's to display. And in fact, speaking of trying to love God with all your heart, God spends a lot of time on the heart. The heart isn't just a New Testament concept. It's an Old Testament concept. God has always been concerned about the heart. And in fact, this is what God says in Deuteronomy, that the only way then, because he demands love, not just on the outside, not just superficial, but from the heart, you have to have a circumcised heart. But he also says this in Deuteronomy 29, you don't. So you think, wait, if you have to have a circumcised heart, but I don't have a circumcised heart, and I can't have a circumcised heart, how, how is that supposed to work? Well, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to the Lord. He'll work it out, and he does. In Deuteronomy 30, God says, and I will circumcise your heart. You see, Israel started to understand from that point that they couldn't be right before God. There was no way for them to clean themselves up and to satisfy his holy standard. God is going to step in. God is going to come in and he's going to do that for them so that they can live for him. This is the gospel. It's already there. It's already present. And they're looking forward to that, even as they're looking forward to a king. Speaking of which, now at this point, Israel enters into the land. They're ready. They know why they exist. They know what the law is all about. They know what they're supposed to do in the land. And God begins to show the world they mean business. That's the book of Joshua. God conquers the land to demonstrate he is king over all. He will make things right. He will conquer evil. Joshua is a microcosm of that. And Joshua, in the book of Joshua, we see that, yeah, things are still to be continued because Israel doesn't conquer the whole land. That gets back to the sin problem. You got to solve that if you're really going to fulfill all things. But having demonstrated to the world, yes, is there is this nation Israel. Yes, they do testify to all of these theology, all of this promise about God and his plan of salvation. Yes, we've got them situated in the land so that they can witness about God. Well, now they need to start doing that and their redemptive history takes a distinctive turn. After all, we've seen how God has preserved the line. He's preserved the line from Genesis. He's preserved the line through Exodus and Numbers and Deuteronomy and even Joshua. And now that line of the sea that's been preserved, it's taking a very distinctive turn to focus on the king. You see, in the book of Judges, everyone does what is right in their own eyes. Why? Because there's no king. Because there's no king. And so in the book of Judges, we start to learn there's a need for leadership. And in the book of Ruth, in the, which happens in the time of the Judges, we learn that, hey, here's the 
line of the ruler. Here, here is the real line. Here is the good line that's going to lead to the king. And it's through the line of Ruth and Boaz, through the line of David. And in First and Second Samuel, we start to see how that comes to play. We see that God gives Israel the wrong king, so they understand who the right king should be. And within that, that this right king is David, and David becomes the paradigm for what a king ought to be, even though he's definitely not perfect. And he is entrusted with precious promises. We call this the Davidic covenant. The Davidic covenant is the one covenant to rule them all. There are a lot of covenants in the Bible. We've talked about one, like the Abrahamic covenant. There's another one called the Mosaic covenant, which teaches Israel how to please God and how to represent God to the whole world. But the Davidic covenant, it's got the power to rule and control all the promises in every single covenant. The one who possesses and fulfills it is the one who fulfills God's plan and all of redemptive history. And God entrusts that to the line of kings, to the line of David. But like I said, while the Davidic covenant, it works. It's powerful, but David's not the one to fulfill it. David's not the one to fulfill it. There's David and Bathsheba, and things fall apart, and we know that's not where redemptive history goes. It's not in David. It'll be in a new David. It'll be in a final David, and the rest of redemptive history is the search for the king. And so, yeah, in 1 Kings, we see Solomon, and we might wonder, is this the guy? Maybe he's the messianic person. Maybe he's the one who can fulfill the Davidic covenant. And we see the power of the Davidic covenant in his golden era, that there is so much food in abundance that it puts to end world hunger, at least in Israel, in that sense. And there's abundance and peace and joy. It's amazing. It's Edenic, but not to be. And at the same time, in this time period, the nations are learning about God. It's amazing. There's theology found in Psalms about worship and the true king. There's theology found in Song of Songs, which is about true love, and Proverbs about true living, and Ecclesiastes about life. So much is happening, and so many good things are happening, but it's not to be. We know that Solomon fails. We know that he can't fulfill the Davidic covenant. We know that he's not the one. He's not the one of Genesis 3.15. And so redemptive history continues to move and you have the rest of 1 Kings and the rest of 2 Kings and you're looking for who could be this king. And the answer is no man can be the right king. There is no man who can fulfill the Davidic covenant. They all fall in their own ways. Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God rules by his word. Yes, God is king. But no man then, by himself, and a mere man, can be the king. That is where the book of 2 Kings leads us. And in fact, it leads into disaster as Israel is carried off in exile. But there's hope. There's hope. Because at the end of 2 Kings, it reminds us that the line of kings hasn't fallen. It's not gone. And God will continue to preserve his line of kings forward unto the Messiah. Thank you for listening to the Center for Thinking Biblically podcast. To help support this ministry, please visit thinkbiblically.org forward slash donate. To learn more about the Masters University on campus and online undergraduate and graduate programs, visit masters.edu.